From Burning Man's Philosophical Center, this is Fascinating Stranger. I'm Caveat. I've always considered Burning Man to be an exercise in applied existentialism, by which I mean, well, actually, what, what the hell do I mean? Okay. If existentialism has a snappy motto, it's probably Sartre's statement that man is condemned to be free. It's a great soundbite, and it captures something important about human life. But it's also a little depressing, isn't it? I mean, condemned? That's a word we use for prison time and death sentences. But I think it perfectly encapsulates the experience of being at Burning Man for the first time, and that first time you ask yourself, now what? What do I do? A number of years ago, a dear friend took me to the Aspen Food and Wine Festival for my birthday, and we never asked, not once, what am I supposed to do here? It was obvious what we were there to do. We walked from table to table, and if they had food, we ate it, and if they had wine, we drank it. It was really that simple. People call Burning Man a festival, but what am I supposed to do isn't a question that's really associated with festivals. If it's a music festival, then you pick the stages where the acts you want to see are playing, and you go see them. If it's a political convention, then you go and you listen to the speeches and maybe you cast a vote for something. But your purpose is clear. Not only is that what you're supposed to do, but there aren't many other options for things you could do. Going to a political convention to start a band is way off topic. We're used to recreation that is a closed system. What's a television for? You watch it. What do I do with this book? I read it. Unless it's a bad book, in which case I throw it at somebody's television. The only real question you have to ask is, will I participate or not? Once you've figured that out, it's easy to know what you're supposed to do and go through the steps, and they're pretty much the same for everybody. When we go to festivals or events or entertainment venues, we're used to it being a closed system. But Burning Man is an open system. Not only doesn't it come with a set of instructions, it comes with very few expectations. And that means you have to make choices. Do you want to wear clothes or not? Do you want to wear a costume or not? Do you want to look for a big party or go exploring out in the open desert? Do you want to ride an art car? Do you want to build an art car? And these are the easy choices. If you want, you can start a newspaper, you can join a radio station, you can be a DJ, you can try to open an inflatable restaurant, you can offer people potato pancakes and bacon, you can yell at people through a megaphone, you can find an orgy after your morning yoga. In other words, Burning Man gives you what festivals and lecture circuits and entertainment options don't. It gives you agency. You not only get to make choices, you have to make choices. At Burning Man, you have as many choices as you do everywhere else in your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are condemned to be free. And condemned kind of works for those first moments, that first realization. Because some people really have a problem with this. 
if you've been out there before, you've probably seen them, standing in slack-jawed awe, looking lost, maybe horrified, honestly not sure what to do with themselves. Because when you have agency, you are confronted with that most fundamental question. What's important to me? Given all the choices in the world, what do I want to do now? This very moment. I sometimes wonder if one of the reasons so many people say their lives are transformed by Burning Man is that they were confronted by that choice, and instead of feeling condemned by it, they got around to embracing it joyfully. I can see that changing somebody's life in a profound way. But Sartre was an asshole, if we're being honest, and way too much attention is paid to him. I prefer the more obscure existentialists, the existentialists who often aren't even recognized as being existentialists at all, the deep tracks of existentialism, if you will. I, I was actually thinking about this in the first place because I was reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and was struck just knocked on my ass by the way he describes how the beauty of art and nature actually becomes more important, not less, when you're in extreme environments. And by extreme environments, he means a concentration camp. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor, and in this book, in the middle of a discussion about the ways in which this dehumanization robs you of your entire personality and then coats you in a layer of apathy so that you can keep on living, there is a stunning admission that love and art and nature somehow become more important than ever. I'm, I'm just going to read you this straight from the book. This is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and this is a true story. That This all really happened to him. This is at Auschwitz. As the inner life of the prisoner tended to become more intense, he also experienced the beauty of art and nature as never before. Under their influence, he sometimes even forgot his own frightful circumstances. If someone had seen our faces on the journey from Auschwitz to a Bavarian camp as we beheld the mountains of Salzburg with their summits glowing in the sunset through the little barred windows of the prison carriage, he would never have believed that those were the faces of men who had given up all hope of life and liberty. Despite the fact, or maybe because of it, we were carried away by nature's beauty, which we had missed for so long. In camp, too, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him to a nice view of the setting sun shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, the same woods in which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, dead tired, soup bowls in hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colors from steel blue to blood red. The desolate gray mud huts provided a sharp contrast, while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then, after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, How beautiful the world could be. Earlier I mentioned art. Is there such a thing as art in a concentration camp? It rather depends on what one chooses to call art, 
A kind of cabaret was improvised from time to time. A hut was cleared temporarily. A few wooden benches were pushed or nailed together, and a program was drawn up. In the evening, those who had fairly good positions in camp, the capos and the workers who did not have to leave camp on distant marches, assembled there. They came to have a few laughs or perhaps to cry a little. There were songs, poems, jokes, some with underlying satire regarding the camp. All were meant to help us forget, and they did help. The gatherings were so effective that a few ordinary prisoners went to see the cabaret in spite of their fatigue, even though they missed their daily portion of food. Even in this place, a place where prisoners would see each other beaten to death and learn not to bother turning their heads, they would run to tell each other about the beautiful sunsets. They would give up food in starvation conditions to see singing and performance. My God. We tend to think of art and beauty as luxuries, as things that we can spend time on once we have the important stuff down. But what Frankel is showing us is that in fact art and beauty are bedrock needs, that when you are faced with the starkest choices in life, they can matter more than food, more than life itself. Is it any wonder then that when people realize they are condemned to be free, when they are finally aware that they have agency, they can do anything they want. So many of them choose to make art, or to engage with artists, or to find the things that are beautiful to them. I think that it's easy to forget about art and beauty, or at least take them for granted, when you're constantly being distracted, when you've got to get to work, when you've got to meet a deadline, when you've got to do your laundry, pay rent. You're not really thinking about what's important, are you? You don't feel like you have agency. Nobody reaches the end of their life and thinks, if only I'd gotten to work on time and paid more rent. No, that's, that's stuff you do because you don't feel like you have a choice. When you do feel like you have a choice, when you have agency, you choose something completely different. You choose art. Frankl wasn't the first early existentialist to talk about how important art is to the human condition. About a century before the Holocaust, Arthur Schopenhauer, one of the great pessimists of philosophy, held that it is the aesthetic experience of art and beauty that allow us to experience the world as it really is and to transcend our own egos and constant struggle. To love art and beauty isn't a luxury, but at the heart of what it is to be alive. To love art is, in a very real way, to choose to change ourselves. Maybe temporarily, maybe for good. It is perfectly compatible with Schopenhauer's view that if someone is trying to find the will to stay alive in impossible circumstances, that they could do it through an experience of art and beauty. That if someone wants to change their life, that they could find the capacity within themselves through art and beauty. Perhaps the ultimate choice we make, the ultimate agency we have, is best expressed through art. As long as I'm telling you about my favorite obscure existentialists, I want to tell you about Miguel de Unamuno. I love this guy so much, and almost none of the people I know who I would talk about existentialism with have ever heard of him. Unamuno was a Spanish philosopher and artist who lived between 1864 and 1936. 
Here's my favorite story about Unamuno, and, and there are a lot of good ones, including this one time when he was 70 years old and he denounced fascism from on stage next to a fascist general at a fascist rally. You may win, he said, but you will never convince. But that's not my favorite story. My favorite story takes place earlier in his life. Unamuno was the rector of the University of Salamanca and then was removed from his post and sent into exile by the military dictatorship. Six years later, the general dies, and Unamuno got his job back. So he goes back to the university and begins his very first lecture after a six-year absence with the words, As I was saying yesterday... That cracks me up. That's me. But Unamuno put his finger on something that I think really established why Burning Man is applied existentialism, not just some snappy version of a Sartre quote. Unamuno wrote, the meaning of life will never be understood because the purpose of life is to be lived, not understood. Which is to say that we don't really have to understand why we're making the choices we are, and we don't have to wrap our approach to life or burning man up in a neat little bow. Life is messy and contradictory, and all we really have to do is live it. You go out to the playa, you go to Burning Man, and you can do whatever brings you alive and figure out why later. You get a tremendous sense of that agency, that ability to make choices, when you're able to just let go of the need to rationalize those choices and justify them for a while. Yes, yes, we can absolutely justify the value of experiencing art and whimsy and natural beauty and free agency... And it's no accident that so many people are moved by these things specifically. But the purpose of these things isn't to be explained. They're to be lived. What do you do at Burning Man? Whatever brings you alive. Whatever you want to do with your life. Applied existentialism. There it is. This has been Fascinating Stranger, a production of Burning Man's Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat Magister. Our theme music was written and performed by Ariel Cruz. Be sure to catch our next episode, when I will swallow an entire phenomenologist. <laughs>